Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. Welcome back. I'm finding that questioning evangelicals or exvangelicals, however they choose to identify, are really curious folks. That's me. As my mom says, I have a rebellious spirit, always questioning. Or they hit a bump in the road early in life that puts them on the questioning path. Today we get to meet Jason. I'm an ADHD, like brain who's just following the wind it's it can feel like to people who are around me uh-huh. i was always kind of like the person who could go into a room and just immediately like empath like kind of thing like just immediately know what all of you are thinking and feeling and sensing i'm a very loyal person unless things go really bad i'll stick it out to my like detriment, detriment. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but it's true. (laughs) Yeah. He's an uber-talented musician and singer, though he's a bit stuffy today. I took an allergy pill today. Thank you. (laughs) His story is one of familial heartbreak, leaning hard into his faith, including a jaunt to the infamous Liberty University, and now finding new ways to explore his spirituality while being a pseudo-employee of God. Okay. We're leaving California and heading south for the beginning of Jason's story. Well, you won't hear it all the time. You'll hear it occasionally. I'm not from California. I am from Bluff City, Tennessee. Oh my gosh. Bluff City is outside of Bristol, Tennessee. Mm. Bristol is the birthplace of country music. It's also the home of the world's fastest half mile, which is a NASCAR track. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. And my town is outside of Bristol. It's like 2,000 people. Middle of nowhere, there's just this town. It's like on a train line. There's a ton of music, a ton of bluegrass, very southern, very redneck, very, very Christian, extremely Christian, extremely Baptist, to be honest with you. Um, southern Baptist with a little bit of other flavors of Christianity, but ideally it's just like levels of Baptist. (laughs) There were, (laughs) I remember there being in a a Catholic church, but they weren't Christians. And I remember there being like a Lutheran church, but they also weren't Christians. Uh Right. (laughs) And there was definitely a Presbyterian church, but they were Christians who could drink. (laughs) So that's how I grew up understanding uh-huh. Christianity. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I grew up in the evangelical, predominantly white church of California's Central Valley, as Emily did. You heard her last episode. But it's hard to say where to draw the line. This church is evangelical, this isn't, because there are evangelical churches in lots of Christian denominations. Last episode, we mentioned the Assemblies of God Church, classified as Pentecostal and Catholicism, which would not be evangelical. And Emily mentioned her fear of the local Presbyterian church where there was an ordained female pastor. Now, Jason has just listed all the Christian churches his culture actually viewed as non-Christian. 
few. This is complicated. I tried to Google the history of Christian denominations because I thought maybe you would want to know, but you know what? You don't. And if you really do, then you should definitely go to seminary. There are like one million different denominations. People get together, agree with each other, and then in the case of Protestants especially, they go, never mind, we don't agree anymore, and bam, a new denomination was created. The end. What I will pass on is that Wikipedia divides them into three categories, the Catholic Church, Evangelical Protestantism, and Mainline Protestantism, which none of those include orthodoxy. Evangelical includes stuff like Baptists, Presbyterian Church of America, Assemblies of God, and Lutheran. Mainline is stuff like American Baptist, yep, different than Southern Baptist, Methodist, the confusingly named Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, and the Episcopal Church. Quote, the dichotomy between evangelical versus mainline denominations is increasingly complex. Also, historically black Protestant churches are not lumped under either category. These include National Baptist Convention USA, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and Church of God in Christ. Then, usually included within Christian data are Latter-day Saints, aka Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Messianic Jews, and Unitarians. Is your brain breaking? That was only like 1% I could have told you about Christian denominations. So if I left out something important to you, I'm sorry. But this series is about evangelical refugees. So let's get back to the Southern Baptists, where little Jason is growing up. Yeah, so I grew up with two parents, and somewhere along the way, they decided they would like another offspring. And so I have a brother who's seven years younger than me. Cool. Again, the center of my entire existence as a child was Jesus and God and Southern Baptist Christianity and family. That was like it. There wasn't anything else in the world. In middle school, he left the church that he had grown up in. So to, to give them credit, they like decided to leave the church that we were in, which was a f- church that my stepdad's like family kind of all came from. Mm-hmm. So one of those Southern Baptist churches where everyone's related, you don't really know why. <laughs> Just put it that way. There's a lot of second, thirds, fourths. I don't know. But to give them credit, they they were like, there's nothing here for me, for Jason, and for my brother. Mm-hmm. So we moved to a church closer to where we lived, and they had like a thriving youth group. So that became kind of the center of my world, like church on Sunday morning for three hours, Sunday school, church. Then we would go have dinner which is technically lunch with everyone else in our family. And then we would go see the rest of the family on Sunday. He was happy in his life with church, Jesus, and family, and starting to explore new things in middle school. Plus, he found his life passion. All this church, God, Jesus, school. Yeah, I was super happy. I didn't know any different. It didn't, it wasn't until like seventh grade till like things really unraveled for me but Mm -hmm. like sixth grade I was very happy like I did after school art where we painted 
murals in the school, things like that. I remember going to band, like auditioning and music becoming a thing. And I took to really quickly mm-hmm. and I, I became like, I figured out really quickly music is something I really like to do and I don't have to work that hard in order to do it Sure, because I'm so naturally gifted at it. <laughs> like just to be honest with you, <laughs> like that's not like an arrogant statement. It's just like, uh, I figured out real quick, Oh, this is something I really enjoy doing and I don't have to work that hard to do it. Right now, if I work that hard, the magic can happen, which is cool. But like <laughs> that became like, and then playing sports, playing football, baseball like I was always like really kind of happy but socially I was miserable because I came from a very poor family poor community and I'll never forget in sixth grade the first time someone pointed out that difference that mm-hmm. I didn't know right so for the first time I'm I'm confronted with like Oh, you have, there are people who have things that I do not have. Yeah. And they're willing to tell you, you don't have those things. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was shoes. I'm sure that there's a lot of people who have that. Like shoes seem to be like, especially for someone my age, I'm 39. So middle school is what? 94. Right. Michael Jordan, height of Michael Jordan. Nikes are like king. Jordans are king. So, um, someone was like, oh, you have cheap shoes. And I'll never forget that kid said it to me like in class. And I was like, oh, I, I need shoes in order to have friends. I was like, I was like, oh, so then I got some shoes. I figured out a way to, to make shoes happen. Yeah. My my grandma bought me Nikes every Christmas. That was like a thing to have. So. Jordans are king. But for Jason, Jesus is the king of kings, and that part of his identity trumped all. Just like Emily and Aaron, Jason carried the weight of saving souls and took his evangelism real serious. Socially at school was was a little weird because I had, I was always walking around with my Christian identity and faith and very much in love with it. And so I would always kind of, I was always like, oh, there's certain people I can't hang out with because they're not Christians. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was always like something separating me from people. Yeah. And I think still to this day, I have a, I have a challenge of like, not with the Christian thing, but just with connecting with people in a way that's not like me trying to prove something or whatever does that make sense like yeah and i think a lot of it stems from that like i was walking around as a a warrior for god trying to like pray for my kid my friends does that make sense right yeah very weird yeah Yeah. then a trip to walmart changed everything and I can't remember if it was seventh grade or eighth grade. I feel like it was seventh grade. There's a lot of happened in seventh grade. Seventh grade, you're like 13, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. right? So, like, the worst time possible to tell some kid anything like I'm about to experience. I'll never forget this day. Like, I don't know the date, I don't know the time of year, but. My mom and I, she had a Chevy Corsica, which is like a very 90s car. Uh Um, Some, yeah, some people out there (laughs) probably know what that is. It was like an affordable 
cool looking car. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we had went to uh, Walmart because that's what you do in the South, and we were coming home, and she was. I remember her being very emotional, and I couldn't really understand. I didn't have any context for why she was so emotional. She was driving a car, and and I was like, "What's wrong?" and she just said, there's something that you don't know that I've never told you. And I need to tell you your dad is not your actual dad. And I was like, Oh, Whoa, that doesn't, why are you telling me this now? Like what is happening? I had a million questions, but she's like, while we were in the store, your actual dad was in the aisle with us. And I was like, has this happened a lot? And I remember saying that, has this happened a lot? And she was like, it's happened. I think she said like, it's happened, but not, I don't know if she said it's happened a lot, but it's like, it's a small town. There's no, there's no way that this person doesn't know about my existence. Right, right. So then that led to all the million questions that you can think about, like, who is this person? What happened? To this day, I still have no clue. She won't tell me. She just refuses to tell me. So everyone I've ever talked to has your reaction. <laughs> everyone, for the listeners at home, you can't see the <laughs> look of shock and horror on the face. Does right she now. say why? I think it's her own It's her own shame and like story around it. That's because I, because I was in it, like that religious system. Like, I'm better off not knowing in her mind, I think. Yeah. Everyone's better off if we just keep it a secret. Right. Which is very Southern Baptist Christian Mm -hmm. thinking. There's no, you know, there's no shadow work of any kind in that world. Right, right. (laughs) So was, were your mom and stepdad together when you were conceived? Or were you conceived before they got together? Yeah, so I was actually in their wedding and growing up, there were photos of my parents this point I'm talking about, like the dad who kind of raised me from age two to like now. Yeah. Uh, There were photos of that wedding and I was in them and I didn't even realize it. And I remember looking at them as a kid and going like, Oh, I don't remember this, but that's cool. I was like in this. Right. Yeah. I had like a little short, I, I look like, um, Who's a guitar player for ACDC with the shorts, <laughs> the short tucks? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. I had like that combo going on. Yeah. Yeah. I asked specifically how this new knowledge impacted his relationship with the dad that raised him, but he was quick to say that the implications were far reaching beyond that. I mean, it, it impacted my relationship with everyone because immediately I was like, Oh, this is like a big cosmic joke and you're all in on it. And that I think that's like the thing that's so still to this day, it's really hard for me to reconcile that every member of my family lied to me for like 13 years. Right. To my face. Right. And didn't. And still to this day continues to like not talk about it. And I think it's insane that we don't talk about it. So like I would say it made every not just that one specifically, I would say it made every relationship with every family member I have kind of tricky. I think the other thing as I got older and 
wanted to learn more about this, anytime I brought it up or like tried to ask the question, it was just met with so much resistance that it didn't really, I never wanted it to be like a personal attack on him necessarily. It wasn't like a, in my mind, me knowing everything does not impact what he did for me in any way. Does that make sense? Like, or like the times that he was there for me, provided for me, like gave me the opportunity to be where I am to this day. Like, right. I'm very grateful for all of that. I totally understand it, but the lingering things that hide in the shadows and those areas of my own, the, the older I've gotten, it's kind of a health thing where I'm like, I have this whole set of DNA. I know nothing about like, This person could have died at early age from heart failure. I have no idea. Right, right. And I think that's like, for me, that's like the biggest, um, now the older I get, the more I definitely want to know. And a lot of it has to do with just knowing my genetics and now I'm constructed in early warning signs and all this. Like me, you're probably wondering if he's done DNA testing. Yes, he did 23 and Me. I'll never forget when she found out about it. She was like, oh, yeah, I thought you might do something like that. And I'm like, yeah, you didn't think about that when you didn't tell me anything. <laughs> but so far, no paternal leads. He's pretty confident BioDad knows that he exists and has pieced together bits of stories and overheard comments to create this impression and the idea that he lives back in their small Tennessee community. But he has one more story that was cemented in his mind. One time at band camp, this is not a, this, there's no way to say <laughs> I'm like, that. like, where without is it this being, going? <laughs> so when I was a senior in high school, I started like dating someone and they were like a year younger than me. So I went to their band camp after I graduated. So okay. that was in like August. So I knew a lot of the people there, obviously. Okay. So we back into this spot and we're in a Jeep Grand Cherokee and this Jeep Wrangler pulled up and I was like a Jeep, like Jeep crazy. I had a Jeep Cherokee. I loved the Jeep Cherokees. Uh This Wrangler pulls up and this kid gets out and there's an older gentleman driving the truck, kind of like a granddad looking old. Does that make sense? Again, I was like 18, so age is weird to yeah, me yeah, yeah. but he surely looked older than like he someone who might 30, be though. my dad yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they pull in next to us and i get out of the passenger side and they're getting out of their car and i walk around the front of the jeep cherokee and the kid walks around the front of his wrangler and he turns around and looks me right in the eye and i swear to god it was a spitting image of me when I was in ninth grade. Like this kid looked like me, like to an exact, like his body shape, his like hair, his face, his eyes. It was like, I was literally looking in the mirror and I just stared at him. I'm like, this is wild. What is happening right now? Yeah. I went to the field where they were setting up for the performance and everyone in the band, again, I knew all these people, they were this like, Oh my gosh, we've been waiting on you to get here all week. One of the freshmen is your twin. If you, we have to introduce you. We've been waiting all week for you to get here. And I was like, 
I think I know who you're talking about because I think I just saw them. Sure enough, they bring the kid over. And it was like, I wish I had a picture. I don't yes. have a picture, but it was the, it was like the creepiest moment. I've <laughs> met a few people who look like me over the years, but this was like, oh, you look like I looked like when I was here your age. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah. like, okay, well, that's something. So then I was like, I went back uh, after that. I remember I had a conversation with my mom. Yeah, like who like, is the kid and who is the kid's parent? Is there parent? a chance that guy has like a kid who's entering high school? But that just was met with more like, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> deflect, oh deflect, deflect. gosh. <laughs> so again, no answers. No satisfying conclusion to that damn Jeep story. I've been listening for 15 minutes and I'm frustrated. How the heck can Jason have managed for 25 years? That would make me insane. It's very hard. I love my mom so much. I'm so, I think the idea of her choosing to keep me in the early 80s, 82 specifically, in the South, unmarried, her family is not very Christian. Her um, grandmother, my great grandmother, went to church a lot growing up, and so she would go to church with her. <clears throat> That's how I ended up there, kind of. Um, whereas my stepdad, they're extremely Christian, like okay. just Southern Baptists. Like everyone goes to church. It's like a very normalized thing. Okay. So I I think about that aspect of my mom all the time. Like you, you chose to keep me at such a young age. Cause you know, she was like 19 or whatever yeah. in this environment that I just described. And I'm just like, that's wild. So of course I like love you and I like want a relationship with you, mm -hmm. but this secret makes things incredibly hard. Right. I think that a lot of folks who grew up where there's not like weird secrets, <laughs> they eventually have a chance to change their relationship with their parents. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. I've never had that. I feel like I'm still stuck in seventh grade mm -hmm. where I'm just like their little kid. Right. I don't know what a, what does a relationship look like with, them that isn't still, I feel like that's kind of like my atomic bomb mm -hmm. and everything kind of paused there. Like mm -hmm. all of it paused. Mm -hmm. I want an adult relationship where we don't believe anywhere close to the same thing, but there's like respect and there's truth. Yeah. Truth telling is like very important. To yes. Me. Yes. So like if we can't get that out of the way, I don't know what it's going to look like. Right. I don't know. Back to the implications of that information dropped into his 13-year-old brain. The other thing that happened when I found out was, again, I talked about kind of my life centered around faith and church and God and sports, and I just sound like an ad for like <laughs> a bag or something. <laughs> this is like... And my truck and yeah. my guns. And yeah. <laughs> I'm basically just reading some fucked up bag ad. Uh, I feel like I don't think I realized this till 
much later in my life. But all of the security that I had up until that place was shaped by those things. And then I realized all those things were completely fake. Like they weren't like, there's another storyline where she doesn't marry this guy when I'm two or three, two, I think, I I think it was two. I'm old. Uh, (laughs) There's another storyline where she doesn't marry a Christian and I grew up without Christianity and I don't have to deal with all that insanity later in my life. And there was so much untangling to happen after that, but it didn't, I think I unhealthily probably went into it more Mm. into like Christianity more because it became, I remember um, we had an incredible youth pastor. That was one of the reasons they switched churches because this guy was coming to be the youth pastor and he would do tons of things with us. Like we would do after school. He was always at our school. He was at our sports events, things like this. He was just like really involved everything you want for like someone in that role in your kid's life, I guess. So I will never forget. He did like in middle school, he started experiencing God for youth, which is like a very large Bible book study kind of thing after school. And I would leave school and go to the church and we would talk about the Bible. And then I was there again on Wednesday night. Like it was just always there. Like, And then, then I realized through that relationship, and especially with music overlapping, I started playing bass guitar and garage rock and Christian music came into that, obviously, as well. Uh-huh. So, like, I think I, the trauma happened, and instead of me running away from God, I, like, ran towards God because I was like, well, all these people are liars. I think you're still true. So I'm going to go to you. Mm-hmm. And then I had to unpack that <laughs> later down the line. Mm-hmm. But that that's kind of what happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The way Jason just talked about this period, he's mixing his middle school feelings about church with his feelings at that moment of trauma, with his now adult feelings about church and faith. It's a swirling mixture. And like Emily and I talked about last episode, it's a both and. Loving the church experience of your youth and also now recognizing things about it that weren't true or helpful or faithful to what you now believe. It is very difficult to articulate, and I'll just tell you now, you're going to hear that tension in almost every single episode of this series. So just to be clear, here's how he felt. I loved it. Like, even still this day, he'll I'll see him on night. We're Facebook friends, so I'll see him like... <laughs> He's doing his thing. Again, ideology, theologically, totally not on my team that I'm currently playing for. But, like, (laughs) I love seeing his post. I love seeing, like, he's still doing, he's like a pastor now of a church. And he's still doing everything he did for me, for other people. And I'm going, like, good for you. I love that. I wish you understood some of the damage that some of the things you're doing is doing, but like, I don't think I would have ever landed in, in San Francisco and before that New York. So many things happened because of that relationship I had with that guy. He really took me under his wing and like 
just had a great experience with it. So, yeah, I look back on my youth, church youth days as, like, really cool. I mean, it was like, because, again, it was like the school turmoil was so bad. I was made fun of so much. I had pretty big front teeth. So I was given a nickname, and everyone called me that. And every time I said it, it was like, someone stabbing me in the heart oh it was like the worst thing gosh. ever the only place it didn't happen was a church because right. i controlled it because i was like the golden child right i was the youth leader here's how seriously he took his safety zone one guy i grew up playing baseball with he occasionally came to our church and then i remember when jesus freak came out <laughs> dc talk for all you listeners at home <laughs> jesus freak Highest selling Christian album of all time, like a hundred thousand copies. Our middle school in seventh grade opened a uh, shop. Shop in most places means like woodworking or something like that. Our shop was like these technology stations where it was like one station was like a robot station. One station was a DJ booth. That kid, I'll never forget this. He was in the DJ booth playing Jesus Freak. And I was like, fuck you. Like, you're not a Christian. Why do you get to play the Christian songs? I was like, how dare you? And then I remember I actually talked to him about it. I was like, do you actually know what you're playing? Like, do you believe those things? Well, you need to get to church. That's how, like, oh evangelistic gosh. I was. Yeah. Right. So I'll never forget that he started coming. And I think, you know, we played sports together. His family's incredibly wealthy. Our, our lives couldn't have been different. He grew up in a swimming pool. I grew up swimming in the lake. Yeah. And he tried to call me that nickname at church. He did it in front of other people. And I would just let it slide. And then the class was, it was like a Sunday school class. The class ended everyone kind of left really quick and he was the only one left. I went over and shut the door and I physically grabbed him and held him against the wall. And I said, if you ever call me that here again, I will end your life. <laughs> like oh, I was that like, gosh. that was my space. That was right. my safe space where I right. was like, I didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. But I was that angry. Like, right. Yeah. And it didn't happen again. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can you speak the nickname? Oh, yeah, his beaver, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so not even creative. Not even creative. <laughs> he made a couple other safe zones for himself. It tried to happen in band, too, and I did the same thing that I had done in church. Because okay. band was kind of my safe space. I was, like, always one of the best musicians. So I kind of had some weight to throw around there a little bit, yeah. where it's like, no, 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 this is my space. Yeah. You're in my space now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as like a 13-year-old. <laughs> and I I squashed that in that space uh -huh. for me as well. So I, I kind of had to create these spaces where I felt safe. Right. And run into them. But with sports, ultimately I stopped playing baseball. I was very good at baseball early on, and I stopped kind of accelerating because so much of that made its way into baseball and I could no longer control it. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, this isn't worth my time. I don't want to come here to get beat up every day. This is like not worth it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Jason survived high school, 
left his parents' church and joined a non-denominational one, still evangelical but less Southern Baptist, and took off to junior college. I didn't really grow up with any sort of conversations about like future or careers. It's a very working class family. Like, you know, my mom growing up worked in a sewing factory. My dad did other work in factories and then worked his way up into like higher jobs in those factories. None of us had anyone telling us anything. It's not their fault. It's generational. Yeah. So like, so I had to figure that out on my own. Like my stepdad, dad, you have to pick a term to call him. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to call him. We'll just call him dad, He's I guess. dad. He had been in the military and got like uh, into the local technical community college after that. So I, it was kind of like natural for me to go there because it was cheap and like I could figure that out. I had also started playing in bands at the time. So I was in a weird space where I'm like working a ton. I had like three jobs and playing a few bands leading worship music at church because that started when I was 18. Oh my gosh. And going to school. And obviously, of all those things, the least thing I cared about was going to school. <laughs> so I think I lasted a year. He didn't love it, but powered through, barely, getting an associate's degree in communication. And interestingly... He heard some new ideas in junior college. I had taken Old Testament at my community college. That's the first time someone had told me that there's multiple creation myths and that there's multiple uh, destruction myths around Noah's Ark. I had no idea those things existed outside of what I thought. So I think because I'd separated myself from my parents' church faith At 18, pretty hard. I had already started to unravel some things. Mm -hmm. And those things in the beginning were very juvenile. It was like, oh, organ music sucks. I don't, why are we even, (laughs) why, like, why are we singing songs that are like 300 years old with an organ? I don't even understand this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I had already been doing that with the elements of like what being a Christian was. Sure. So like I had already began deconstructing worship uh-huh, and uh-huh. music. No one explained anything about going to school. He was on his own. So he decided to go to Liberty University. And then went to Liberty in the spring. I didn't really know Jerry Falwell, to be honest with you, before going there. That's like the funniest thing about my story. Is uh-huh. like, I was like, why is everyone making a big deal out of this guy? I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't know yeah, that yeah. he was responsible for like several presidents and insanity. So like, <laughs> um, that was good in a lot of ways because it he never impressed me. That's like, <laughs> I was like, why? He's like not that good. Like his, he would give like a sermon at convocation and I'd be like so by this point you had mega churches happening and there were several pastors that I would listen to religiously and I was like these people are way better than this guy why yeah, do you yeah. like yeah. everyone is like all on him I don't understand it I had no idea it was like 
the political thing more than the Christian thing. Here's a hint of what it was like. It was a very pivotal year. It's the first year Liberty ever allowed blue jeans. <gasps> Whoa, dude. <gasps> <laughs> yeah. And then the second year they allowed blue jeans with open-toed sandals. Wow. For everyone. And that was just in 2004? That was 2004, 2005. <gasps> yeah. You still had to have your shirt tucked in, but. I think the second year they allowed like, because they were trying to, the basketball team got to the uh, tournament. So they were like trying to up the school pride. So they were like, you can, you can wear a Liberty t-shirt and sweatshirt and not tuck it in. But if you wear something that's not that, you have to tuck it in. It has to have a collar. Dang, fancy. I didn't realize. Yeah, it was very boarding school like. Yeah. The decision to attend Liberty was directly connected to the safe spaces he had found in church and in music. When I, like in the middle school thing, when I really turned into like evangelist Jason, like super Christian, that was the only space I ever knew that was like safe. And like, I just kept following that. And I think Mm -hmm. when it came time to like, oh, you have to do like a degree By this point, I had been leading worship for two years, probably. So, like, worship, when I started, wasn't that popular. Like, two years in, it's growing in popularity. There's, Uh like, college movements now of, like, passion and all of that. Chris Tomlin's kind of coming out. Hillsong's, like not really a thing yet. This is all pre-Hillsong. They're a thing, but they're not like a cool rock and roll thing. Yeah. I was leading worship at a church. I left my parents' church when I was 18. I I got out of there and started going to a different church. Okay. And they had pretty big youth group. So like, I was the creepo hanging out with the youth as a 20-year-old leading worship, (laughs) dating a 19-year-old or whatever. Uh Yeah. So I know your types. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's so creepy to think about. But like, uh, so, you know, four years of leading worship at a local church. And I was like, I feel like this is something I'm gifted at. There was a lot of, by that point, like worship was like a thing. It was clearly something that I had been affirmed in by lots of people. Uh And I was like, well, maybe I should do this and maybe I'll just work at a church. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. So I went, I went and stayed with one of the guys from the youth group who at that point was a freshman at Liberty for, they do these, uh, twice a year. They bring in like Toby Mac. That's a funny name. (laughs) (laughs) They do like, uh, it has a stupid name. Of course it does. And I don't remember the name of it, but it's basically a weekend where there's a homecoming football game. There's like a mega CCM artist that plays. There's like some church services you attend and yeah. it's for you to like check out the school. Right, right, right. So I had done that and you actually stay on the dorm. Like Did you, you love it so much? Oh, I was like, this is everything I, this is everything I've wanted out of like my Christian faith. He was safe with only opportunity in front of him. I'm like in the center of where it's happening. Right. Like I got, like, I was like, this is, uh, like up to that point, I had just been in the periphery of like 
I loved it. I was like, this is like a really good space to be in. And it's going to be how much money? Cool. I'll just get loans and pay for it. Because uh-huh. I'm going to Liberty. I'm going to get a job at a church. Everyone's going to hire someone who goes to Liberty. Right. 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 Which technically happened. So like, <laughs> like, oh, this seems like a place where you can. There's so many avenues that this could lead to that are very appealing to me. One of those avenues might have been CCM music. One of those avenues was like the ability to have a credible, beloved institution, the best in the world, supposedly, on your resume and a church go like, oh, we, of course, Liberty and don't even think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was an added benefit that set him free in an unexpected way. I was finally in a place where my evangelist side just turned off. And I was right. like, oh, everyone's a Christian. This is like heaven. Right. You like have no work to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no working. There's this like just existing, very cultish behavior, obviously. Um, but like, I was really like, oh, the this is what heaven's going to be like. Like all these Christians together and we have church four times a week and there's an old white guy leading us. (laughs) That was what I thought heaven was growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And white Jesus is there with his flowing white robes. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He got some good stuff from Liberty, maybe more than they would have wanted him to. If you go there as a freshman, like and you're going to be there for four years, the first two years of your life there are them just indoctrinating you with their theological lens. I had to do some of that because everyone is required to take evangelism, Old Testament, New Testament, and creation studies. I think those are the four. Okay. So again, by the time I got to Liberty, I, I was already like, I had that Old Testament professor like already having me question everything uh-huh. and like the stuff that we talked about earlier, like with the family and yeah, the dad situation, my skepticism for everything just heightened. So sure. I was always curious. Like I began to be super curious about anything and really leaned into the curiosity even more at Liberty Because again, I wasn't like, Liberty is kind of the type of place where your, your family had gone there or you were a bad kid and your parents are saying, we're not paying for your school unless you go to Liberty. Oh, okay. So those were kind of the two groups of people. And I think I probably identified with the bad kid model more than the people who were like, our whole family went to Liberty. Right, we right. love Jerry Falwell. Yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah. really, I didn't have that. I still strongly believed in afterlife, as they would describe it, as a hell and a heaven. And I still strongly believed in you making a decision to like commit your life to follow Jesus. I still believed in like virgin birth. But then because it's a Christian school, there's people training to be pastors. So there would be men only, let's be clear here, having discussions about like reform theology and 
uh, total depravity. And I'd just be like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever <laughs> heard in my life. Why are you talking about this? Because you weren't interested in that. I just stuff. wasn't interested in it. You and were just I like, also I, thought, I love like, Jesus and I want to play music. Yeah. I also thought like you're simplifying so much in that tulip model. Don't ask me to do tulip. I don't know if I can do them all. <laughs> I would be a bad Calvinist, but yeah, just like Calvinist arguing with the people. It's like the, what's the movie where the, the <laughs> dead poets. Yes, 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 yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like imagine a dead poet society. That's not cool. That's Liberty. Like just people <laughs> sitting around arguing about theology. I'm Calvinist. I believe in total depravity. John Piper's awesome. Rick Warren's full of shit because he's from California. Like, yeah, that's like when I was at Liberty, that's what was happening. Rick Warren came. I'll never forget this. Rick Warren came and I had actually read The Purpose Driven Life because I think he came out in like 2001 yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe. And I was like, oh, this is great because I was like, I'd read his Purpose Driven Church, the church I was working at. I had tried to get them on board with some of those ideas. So he came and he just faced all this backlash at Liberty, like from the student body. And we're talking 10, 12,000 people, just a lot of backlash. Like this is fluff garbage. And I was like, so stoked. Cause I'm like, Oh, this guy's cool. He's like doing cool things. And then everyone was like, this guy's awful. The other thing happened I'm pretty sure it was 2004, Rob Bell wrote Velvet Elvis, the bookstore at Liberty had it, and I bought it purely because aesthetically it was pleasing to my eye. Uh-huh. It was, I don't know if you ever saw it, the original one at least was white, it was completely blank, it just had the title, and it had a color spine, like the pages, uh-huh. Uh-huh. the pages were like a, a orange color, and I was like, oh, I've never seen a book look like That's that. cool. And you would open it up and it was like very sparse. I'm not like, I wasn't like a big reader. I'm still not a big reader. Um, I was like, oh, I, I like this. And I read it and I consumed it. And I was like, I want to find everything this person's doing. I'm, this is my path. So I started listening to his podcast. And there was another preacher from LA at the time, Erwin McManus, who was also kind of preaching the same way. So my theological and epistemological, like the church, churchiness of it, like idea of church Uh was very much shifting while I was in that space. I was having these intense moments of like, Oliver North is speaking today at convocation about guns. And then Rob Bell's like, do you know that we own the most guns in in the world? Uh Those two things Uh were happening at the exact same time. Right, right. Suddenly, he was out of alignment with the heaven he had entered two years before. And he was ready to dream big. At Liberty, I had to do an internship for the program. I went on Yahoo, probably. I don't think Google was a thing yet. And I searched for church internship 
New York City, because why not? And I found a church, and they were like, had an intern program. It's called The Journey. It's still there to this day. And the person who founded The Journey worked for Rick Warren. So the same kind of ethos that I was kind of mentioning, I was like into. Mm-hmm, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe this would work. I reached out to them. They were like, yeah, we have an internship program, but we've already chosen the worship intern, but apply anyways. Maybe we can get you in next year. And I applied and they're like, okay, so we're going to take you. We told the other person no. And I was like, it's a sign from God. Of course it is. (laughs) Here we go. New York City. Yeah. So then I went there for a summer and then went back to finish at Liberty and then they hired me back. So that's how I got to New York. I lasted 18 months at that job. Uh-huh. I learned what bad leadership looks like. Uh, I mm-hmm. like all the stories that you could ever imagine about mismanaged church leadership and burning people out and capitalistic when capitalism meets the church, that was my experience. Oh. We were the number one Fast, we're the fastest growing church in America, according to some magazine. So wildly successful, wildly recognized. Yeah, air quotes, everyone. The average staff member lasted four months there, I think. And I lasted 18. So in the time that I was there, I saw, I think it was 22 to 24 people cycle through. These are like full-time staff. It's not like hourly kind of person. Right. Oh my gosh. So while I was there, I met another guy who had also planted a church in lower Manhattan uh, called Mosaic Manhattan at the time. And they had merged together with the journey. And so that went just as poorly as you could imagine based on everything I just said. (laughs) And I quit still to say, I don't know if I quit or I got I don't think I got fired. It was kind of like, oh, it was one of those scenarios where the leader looks at you. He literally looked at me and said this. He's like, oh, I can see that you're no longer playing the same game that we're playing. Uh So what would you like to do? And Uh I was like, oh, wow. So what do you think the the difference was there? I started to ask questions. I was like, are we going to talk about the fact that we're just burning people? to a crisp like even volunteers like we're just gonna keep ignoring this but again my curiosity had gotten even more heightened Mm -hmm. the older Mm -hmm. i got and i wasn't i didn't have any fears about like oh what if i don't have a job and i'm in new york and i like how does that work yeah you know because i was an idiot so like That church kind of rebooted, and he moved into a super part-time role there, while also working temp jobs in Manhattan. Then something happened that began a journey all the way across the country to a church called Icon in San Francisco. For you to understand how that happened, I have to let you in on a little irreverent comment I made to Jason. I told him that we were going to let the podcast goddess guide this interview. It was a flippant way to say he didn't need to prepare for the interview, while also implying, because this series is about evangelicals, that the Holy Spirit, that part of God that's tangibly with us and nudging us, will also guide this conversation. So, okay, back to Jason in NYC. 
Hey, do you talk about the goddess ever <laughs> on air? No. The podcast goddess? <laughs> well, I think the podcast goddess made me do it probably. Because yeah, yeah. I heard about the icon job from a friend of mine who sent me the res- uh, the listing. So you heard about he the job? He sent me the job. Mm-hmm. I was coming out of like a pretty volatile relationship and I was like, I could stay here and keep doing this, but maybe it's time to go. And my friend was like, have you prayed about it? And I was like, fuck no. Like <laughs> I would never pray about it. Like, are you kidding me? I know what happens when you do that. Like I am, I'm clued into the universe by this point. Pretty heavy. I like my uh, intuition and my like connection. So like, I'm not going to pray about it. He's like, I think you should. So I actually did like very casually. I'm not like a big pray in my whole life. I'm not like a prayer. Like uh-huh. that's not my thing with Christianity. Uh, <laughs> I think prayer is a little weird, honestly, but <laughs> I said like a simple prayer or something. I, the next morning I woke up, I lived on the G line, which if, if you know the MTA system in New York, the G is like the ghost train. You never know when it's coming. You don't know how long the train's going to be. It could be like four cars. It could be eight cars. You have to run to catch it when you're down there. You never know where it's going to stop. So not a lot of people take the G. I go to the G. I go downstairs. This guy walks up to me, looks me right, like as close as we are. And he's staring at me, which for New York or any big city is not that big of a deal. Right. But he is wearing... It was like a starter jacket for the San Francisco Giants. Uh-huh. And he was wearing a San Francisco Giants hat. And he was also wearing a wristband, which I thought was, like, really weird. Like, because <laughs> he had his sleeves up like this. Uh-huh. And he had, like, a wristband on. I was like, hello? And he's like... He's just staring at me. And so I just went around him. And I was like, well, that's really weird. I'm not a New Yorker, but I identify as a Bronx bomber Yankee fan. So it's really weird to see, like, San Francisco Giants, San Francisco Giants fans anywhere in New York. Because sure. there's the Mets and the Yankees. So I was like, well, that's really weird. Two hours later, my phone rings 415. And I'm like, "Who? Is, where is that? Four and five, where is that? I was like, San Francisco. Oh, that's really weird. That's like crazy weird. And the person leaving a voicemail said, hey, my name is whatever. Uh, I heard that you might be leaving the city and I'm looking for a place to stay. So I'm wondering if you, like someone told me you might be leaving. Like someone, I don't even know who told them this. Uh I never called this person back. Okay. So... I was like, that's really creepy. That's like two Uh goddess things. (laughs) When I get home, and this is when Netflix was sending DVDs to everyone. Uh And it could have been something you added to your list like six months prior. You had no idea when you were going to see a movie. So I had a DVD in my mailbox, The Bridge, which is a documentary about the Golden Gate Bridge and all the suicides that happened. Like from the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I Very remember that. Very popular documentary. Yeah. And I was like, 
that's like a crazy day. Yeah, that was a crazy day. (laughs) So maybe I should reach out. So I looked at the ad again. There was no email. There was no contact person. The The name on the listing wasn't like someone who worked at Icon. So I searched their name and I found a random Gmail address and I just sent it blindly. And within like 45 minutes, they were like, yeah, this is who you got the right people. Let's talk next week. And it happened pretty quick. I mean, it was like March and I moved here June 15th, 2010. I asked Jason what exactly he would be doing there. Did he have an official title or... So there's this period of time where uh, the church plants were like moving away from titles, traditional titles. Uh, right, right. So it was called like arts advocate uh-huh. instead of like worship pastor right, right. or worship director, which I was kind of, I don't identify as worship pastor. That's like a weird title uh-huh, to me. Uh-huh. Music director is what I probably would identify with the most Okay. at this point and even then. Yeah. But arts advocate and the idea was like, Art has always been incredibly important. San Francisco, huge art school, like someone to work with artists, musicians or artists. Uh huh. Yeah. So, did you have like a philosophy or a strategy when you first got started with that? Uh, I don't think so. I think I was like, again, going back to my curiosity and my wanting to get here and understand. San Francisco and the people who were who were part of the place at the time Uh and uh um, yeah they had some ideas about what they wanted out of that but I don't think we ever achieved them This is actually where Jason and I met, and the art was what drew me in. Church was held in a nightclub on Sunday mornings, and there were different, weird, interesting musicians every week. Sadly, Icon shut its doors after only a couple years, and Jason was back on the job hunt. For what? He wasn't sure. After Icon closed down, I uh, I was finally ready to like leave it all behind. Oh, really? Like the church thing. Like you were done, uh, I was done. working in a church yeah, or I was you like, were like, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. I had a job on the table from Square and this was like 2013 Square. Okay. This is like, that would have been a great time to be in Square. And then at the same time, City Church San Francisco had a job open in my neighborhood. I live in the Mission District. So I was like, oh, this is a cool church in my neighborhood. So I was like, I don't. I don't think I'm ready to go yet. This is a new opportunity. And I really think I can't talk about what I've been doing without that. Cause that moment really solidified. I'm not like a worship leader. Mm-hmm. I'm a music mm-hmm. director who happens to be really good at also leading musical worship. Okay. Okay. Because of that sense of me filling the room or whatever. So City Church fostered for the staff finally a sense of like you can be a person there wasn't any sort of there was nothing I could do it was all grace there was certainly some things I could do that could end my job there but like in a, in a sense of like exploration of like trying new things mm-hmm. leading into new ideologies and new theologies it was like anything goes mm-hmm. because it's DNA and its founder very much has that same identity. He found a safe space, 
But this one wasn't safe because he was a star or because he had to fight for it. It was safe because he was a real person who was free to follow his curiosity. You might remember City Church because Emily mentioned how she lived in the mission and tried it out. But when she tried it, it wasn't gay affirming, so it wasn't for her. Jason got to see this change. So along the way, we made a very public uh, shift to become an inclusive church for LGBTQIA congregants at the time and lost millions of dollars <laughs> and like tons of people, half of our people or something like that. Yeah. Whoa, dude. So, but this is something I was already like on board with. Uh-huh. I had been there for a while. I have a gay family member. So like, it was just something where I was like, yeah, this, this is going to happen for me eventually. We've used the term affirming a few times now. An affirming theology maintains that the gender identities, sexual orientations, and sexual relationships of LGBTQ plus individuals are equally as good and holy in the sight of God as those of cisgender heterosexual people. An affirming church means the full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church's life and ministry, in leadership, marriage, baptism, everything. Contrary to how it might seem, Jason felt led towards this church and this moment. I'm an ADHD like brain who's just following the wind. It's it can feel like to people who are around me, uh-huh. but internally, I very much think I'm following something. Uh-huh. Like there's uh-huh. like a presence or a being who's literally opening doors, and I'm just going through. Them. I'm just trying to show up. Uh-huh. So because of that whole shift, me moving into city church. Because of that, I was then entered in this huge new world of Bay Area affirming churches. So developed really great relationships with lots of people who've been doing that work much longer than City Church has been doing that work. Through that, got connected to Grace Cathedral, which is the the Notre Dame of the West Coast. (laughs) There's a cathedral in Washington, D.C. that's like the real national cathedral, but... Grace Cathedral is like the second national cathedral, I guess. And they started a new ministry there on, on Wednesday night to try to combat some of the like church planning in San Francisco had gotten really popular. There was a lot of non-affirming, secretly Southern Baptist, secretly conservative churches being planted. So Grace was like, well, let's try to offer something that is affirming and that's like justice oriented, but also has a lot of similar qualities you might find in those spaces. Uh So like songs, style, basically let's take the things that are really attracting people in those spaces and do them in like a super affirming justice oriented space. And through that, and I think because I had kind of made that mental shift of like, I'm not just like a copycat worship leader, that I'm like a musician, have been able to do cool things like through the ministry at Grace Cathedral. It's called the Vine. The Vine's done sister act mass every year where a thousand people come into the cathedral. Last year's virtual, so <laughs> they didn't show up, but we did it online. We celebrate Pride Week in San Francisco by creating a mass. It's not a Catholic term, mass church service uh-huh. centering LGBTQIA voices 
around the music of Sister Act, uh-huh. which is also a very San Francisco movie, historically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I love it. The Vine, a, as a worshiping community at the cathedral, the Vine never experiences growth from these things. Uh-huh. But like, that's not the goal. We're not going to see like new church. Pe- yeah, people are like, oh, you had a thousand people last week, and this week you have thirty. It's like, yeah, but we had a thousand people last week, and like, if that one little interaction with them changes, changes for that person in that experience in that time, any sort of shift in their consciousness towards like whatever they want to believe in or don't believe in, then that's worth it. Like, mm-hmm. it's not about like. The other thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Jason has created and worked on several really amazing events with the Vine. So you'll have to keep listening to this series to hear more about that. But working at City Church opened a lot of professional and personal doors for him, including the door to his therapist's office. City Church was the thing that forced me into therapy. Everyone's talking about it. You got to do it. <laughs> That's kind of the forcing. Like, why is everyone talking about therapy and the Enneagram? And um, so all these tools, I'd heard about the Enneagram before City Church, but I was kind of like, that's woo-woo. It's not for me. Like, because of my time there, it's opened all these other doors to these connections. So currently where I'm at is City Church full-time, and I kind of do content online on socials and produce the Sunday service. I don't do much music at city church. We, the music director city church has been there for 15, 16 years now. I occasionally do stuff there musically. I do music with the vine community. And then through that, uh, met someone who's launching a new community in Berkeley at all souls, Episcopal parish. And again, it's another person going like, Can we do church in a different way, in a new way? Jason is spreading his wings, discovering what does interest him. Maybe like a shift happened in the last three or four years where I've gone like, I want my energy to go to things that I can clearly see people are passionate about Mm -hmm, and they're like, mm -hmm. they're being transformed by. Yeah. Not out of like a gain for me of any kind. Hmm. Anything outside of city church is not like a big gain for me. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it's like a half gain in a service kind of thing. Right, right. And mm-hmm. at the same time, feeling I need to create more margin for other endeavors that I need to do outside of the church because the idea of like I am exhausted from the conversation about deconstructionism and <laughs> deconstructing your faith and like. Evolving your faith. I love all those people so much. I did the Why Christian Conference, the last thing that Rachel Held Evans did. I was the music director for that when they were here with Nadia and in the city. I'm all about those people. I freaking love those people. But me as a person, I I just, I just, I'm at the place now, Rob Bell talks about, he's talked about this a lot. The idea of what you're for being the work you need to be about. Like so many Christians, especially from the places that I came from, their life and their kind of work revolves around what they are against. Right. And the, what you are against could not be 
less appealing to me. Like, I want to know what you're for. Deconstruction is a term that has become widely used in these circles. Put simply, it's the taking apart and examining aspects of the Christian faith. It usually begins by questioning one idea, practice, or belief that leads to an untangling, getting to the foundation and taking a hard look at the truthfulness, usefulness, or impact of what you believe or participate in. Everybody in this series has done some deconstructing or is still in deconstruction or has returned to deconstruction because this is real life. Jason is currently in a period where he's confident about both what he's for and what he knows he doesn't know. So, of course, doubts and questions are normal forever and ever, amen. But deconstruction of anything is painful, so we all want to be in some kind of stabilization. And I think it's really hard deconstructing faith and reconstructing faith is certainly wildly important, but I think a lot of those conversations in the reconstruction faith miss that, like, what are you for piece a lot of times? Mm -hmm. And they just end up reconstructing another fundamentalism that's like progressive. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't want to do that because I saw where that got me before. That wasn't like a healthy place to be in. What are you for? I'm for love and I'm for abundance. Growing up kind of poor, like I remember the church giving our family food. We didn't know where our food was going to come from. When you, you know, get older and you have a job and you hustle like I do, or you're unhealthy like I am with work sometimes, let's be honest. Like you have these resources that you didn't, you never could have imagined that you would have. So how are you, what are you doing with them? What are you, what are you doing with your time? Maybe it's not actual like money. Maybe you have time. So abundance has been something I've like really for the last year, probably that's like the big thing. I keep joy and abundance. So like wildly important to me, mm-hmm. a lot of that Christina Cleveland, she's an author she has a course basically on deconstructing whiteness and her kind of lens is sacred black feminine. So she's approaching it all. And she created this sacred space. She set the class up in a way that you could fully experience your own whiteness. But the overwhelming message were her from her, from that time in that course was just abundance, abundance, abundance. Like, the fact that we have everything that we need already like why are why are we striving for more and i think i'm trying to work that out as a musician and as like a pseudo employee of god (laughs) (laughs) his theology and spiritual practices have shifted over the years he's a long way from those tennessee jesus freak days there's so many things I don't believe in anymore. I mean, I don't believe in in hell at all. Like, I don't think there's a heaven. Like, that'd be kind of 
weird. Uh, <laughs> I like, what happens when we die? I, I don't care. Like all that stuff is so uninteresting to me, but what is it? What is super interesting is so much Eastern tradition of through meditation, through mindfulness, through, uh, psychedelics, through like experiencing the things that Jesus talked about in his weird way. Uh-huh. But like, you can find those things in all those things I just mentioned. Right, right, right. right. And so I'm for those things as well, because mm-hmm. I think they're wildly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone said this to me recently, and this is really helpful. This is going to sound wildly arrogant, but I think <laughs> I've already said some things that <laughs> makes people realize I'm kind of arrogant. <laughs> I don't mean the arrogance of this statement, but I I mean like the metaphysicalness of this statement, which is they said you've spent your whole artistic career as a musician being a source of light in all these spaces. Your job is to go in and be the brightest light, not for your personal gain, but for like the worship of some being or deity, uh-huh, like God, uh-huh. right? And you've never that bright light constantly shines in your life because you do it so often and you don't ever get to go to your shadows. Hmm. And so, and I was like, Oh, that's like everything. Like, and so for me, I'm really, I'm really exploring those. Like what are the shadow, what's shadow Jason about? Cause right. I really want to know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm like a little scared, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just, we just watched the Woodstock 99 documentary. Oh my God. I hope it's not like that. It's oh, not like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it is like, uh, when you think about it in that regard, it's, it's so true because you, because I struggle to write love songs to Jesus. I don't really do that. I've never been able to do that. Like I've really struggled to articulate my beliefs and my, spirituality through music. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I, I actually haven't tried to write about the disbeliefs and Mm. does that make sense? I can't write about what I believe. I've never been able to do that because I've always been kind of like my belief has never been solid. It's always been like shifting sands kind of thing. Uh I've never been like, I'm 100% confident. Right. I've always been curious. Right. So trying to articulate God or divine presence through like what I don't believe feels like what I should be doing right now. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. I'm just going to show up yeah. and, and see like what happens. He's chosen to still be involved in church life because, well, he has a gift And he enjoys seeing people get what they need in the moment, and now supporting other people's passion projects. Throughout this episode, you've heard this song by Jason Morrell, Song for Henry. You can find his light on Bandcamp. I do know from an early age, the moment I got on stage in front of people, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Like, I remember singing this little light of mine 
at like seven or eight years old, probably my grandmother was playing the piano. People were just loving it. And I was like, anytime I could get up in front of people, oh, I love this. I love being in front of people so much. Yeah. This little light of mine, oh, I'm going to let it shine. Jason mentioned the rise of secretly Southern Baptist church plants in his city. So I wanted to refer you to a helpful resource, churchclarity.org. It's a crowdsourced database of local congregations that are scored on how clearly they communicate their policies. Unfortunately, many churches fail to disclose their actively enforced policies on their website, especially if church growth is the ultimate goal. For example, can a woman preach? Will you officiate a same-sex wedding? Answers to these kind of questions are often elusive, and this ambiguity can cause real harm. So the goal is to standardize policy disclosure, because people deserve to know the truth, whatever that might be. Secrets, whether in church policy or within a family structure, breed shame and destroy relationships. Jason has had to manage the trickle-down shame of generations, leaving him with a hole in his life. Who is my family? Where do I come from? But curiosity has guided his steps toward authentic self-exploration. Now he's asking, who am I really? What am I made for? And what am I for? Because truth-telling starts within us. Join us next time for Keith. I almost wish that, like, Bible studies were more like AA meetings. <laughs> all right. Now all you folks in Radioland driving your cars and having fun at parties and lying in bed, you know, just uh, find it in your heart and sing along. No one's watching, you know. Grandma, <laughs> Grandma, sing along. Grandma! I know you're out there. Don't forsake us. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine.